Grab your trowel and a cup of coffee. You're listening to Archeo Cafe. And I'm your host, Otis Crandell. Welcome to another episode of Archeo Cafe. I'm Otis, and today I have three guest speakers to talk about collaborative archeology. span First, we have Caitlin Malo, a PhD student at the University of Toronto and Director of Education at the Ontario Archaeological Society, Naomi Rekulay, member of the Wikwemkung Unceded Territory, and the Archivist and Programming Coordinator at the Ojibwe Cultural Foundation in Chiging First Nation, Ontario, and Sarah Hazel, member of Nipissing First Nation, Adjunct Professor at Laurentian University, PhD candidate at McGill University, and Workshop Coordinator for the Ontario Archaeological Society. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. <laughs> One thing I'm always interested in is how people first got interested in archaeology or material culture. Sarah, what first attracted you to archaeology or material culture? Um, I was thinking about this earlier, and I I was kind of remembering that I, I really like to read a lot of like King Arthur kind of novels when I was young but then which piqued my interest but really when I was uh, in high school I remember being taught about the pyramids and that maybe they were built by or built by aliens <laughs> <laughs> which kind of blended like my love of also like sci-fi and fantasy novels with archaeology so I, I kind of think that might have been my first like real interest uh, in archaeology. What got you interested in this, Caitlin? Well, it's kind of funny. Uh, before actually doing archaeology, for some reason, I didn't think I would like it. <laughs> but after actually doing a field school and learning more about the process of interpreting uh, archaeological data sets, I kind of just fell in love with it. Uh, I think my favorite thing about archaeology is that we just collect bits and pieces. Uh, and like not only things like artifacts and written records and like paleoenvironmental information, but also like different interpretive tools from like other disciplines throughout the sciences and arts and kind of bring them all together to tell like stories. So I, it was kind of a, interesting for me that in that I didn't really have to choose uh, what I could wanted to be into because I could just do a little bit of everything. Naomi, what got you interested in this field of study? <laughs> Uh, well, an honest answer for me uh, would be uh, the Indiana Jones films. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to be—that's awesome. Yeah, I wanted to be an indie in the sense of <laughs> able to do research, uh, solve mysteries, travel, see the wonders of the world, and experience uh, different cultures. And um, growing up in a First Nation community, those are some big dreams to have, right? Mm. Um, also, in our culture, it's we're just naturally attached to our histories and to our past as it's one of our teachings, right? Um, mm -hmm. When it comes to decision-making, for example, there's this idea of the seven generations. So you're influenced by the seven generations that are behind you, 
but you also have to think of the seven generations ahead of you. Mm. So that idea of the past and the history has kind of always there. Yeah. Naomi, what are your main interests in archaeology? Um, well, at the current moment, my interest with archaeology is in a few areas. Um, repatriation work, uh, increasing training capacity within and for Indigenous communities, making sure that there's space and having space for Indigenous knowledge, uh, and creating opportunities for artists, elders, knowledge keepers, and archaeologists or other academia to interact with one another and just learn from each other. Caitlin, what are your main areas of interest? For me, uh, uh, lately my main area of interest is probably technological systems and how they're shared and communicated between different communities. Um, personally, I'm such a creature of habit in my own life and I really hate change. So it especially fascinates me when uh, people of the past decided to adopt uh, new technological innovations and like decide to change their daily practices. It interests me what motivates that change. What are your areas of interest, Sarah? Um, these days I'm most interested with finding ways to build archeological capacity in indigenous communities. For far too long, we've been marginalized from stewarding our ancestors' belongings and telling our own stories. And I believe that by building this capacity, we will eventually carve out a more equitable place at the table regarding research, legislation, and industry. One thing that all of you have spoken about in the past is collaborative, community-based, and Indigenous archaeology. What is the difference between collaborative and community-based archaeology? Well, um, I think collaborative archaeology has become kind of one of these umbrella terms out there right now that's meant to describe a whole suite of methods uh, of engaging communities, uh, usually descendant communities, and often and most importantly, uh, descendant communities who have been largely shut out of the archaeological research of their own ancestors. And this includes, of course, uh, Indigenous communities. Um, Community-based archaeology is a type of collaborative archaeology, but I certainly wouldn't say that all collaborative archaeology is community-based. Uh, Sonia Alley is a leader in community-based research right now, and she's outlined some criteria that should be met in a community-based project, uh, which includes things like ensuring the community you're working with benefits from the project, as well as ensuring that there's uh, opportunity for community members to participate in all stages of the research. So I think in a lot of ways, community-based research kind of sets the bar really high in terms of involvement of community members. What is Indigenous archaeology? Indigenous archaeology is an approach that is multivocal by including opportunities for non-Western ways of knowing and the inclusion of Indigenous communities as equal partners and collaborators in the research process. Well, I think a lot of projects set out to be multivocal and collaborative there's a lot of work that needs to be done to break down the barriers between academics and Indigenous partners. For instance, at the university level, often Indigenous developed protocols are not accepted and the university insists that their own ethics protocols be followed. Uh, yeah. This might not be acceptable to the Indigenous partner and it might not be desired by the academic, but for the project to move forward, 
they have to adhere to Western-derived protocols. Right. Indigenous communities are sovereign nations. Would a university tell Canada that their protocols are not as rigorous or up to their standards? I, I don't think so. <laughs> um, yeah. Another issue is the funding. Rarely is grant money that is based on Indigenous peoples' ancestors directed to the actual nation. It has to be funneled through the university, depriving an equal platform for the project from a financial perspective. Most importantly, however, is the issue of including Indigenous partners in the actual formation of the research questions and project goals. Many times, I have been asked to participate in a project that is already fully formed as a token to represent Indigenous people. The research is based, for instance, on the Indigenous past and interpreting Indigenous artifacts and material culture, but with little room for equal partnership. And I think this is, um, I think this is why the work that Caitlin and Naomi are doing is so important. What are some projects that you're involved with now that are collaborative, community-based, and Indigenous archaeology? Yeah, so the one project that I'm very excited for is a new project uh, that we recently got funding for, and it's a project that's titled The Revitalization of Anishinaabek Ceramics through archaeology, land, and art making. Uh, with this project, we will bring forward Anishinaabe knowledge and practice of ceramics and utilize archaeological collections to engage with artists, community members, elders, and academia. Um, with this project, we hope to bridge the past with the present to connect our ancestral materials with today's Anishinaabe artists and craftspeople. And it's really about linking the knowledges together um, and just remembering our ancestors, really, and establishing that connection back within our communities. This project will include the sharing of local history and traditional knowledge relating to the archaeological sites on Manitoulin, as well as um, art building workshops, which will be led by local artisans, showing the tradition of clay making and harvesting clay mm -hmm. and the use of um, traditional pigments for ceramic decoration. And in these art workshops will promote that transmission of these skills to the next generation of craftspeople in our communities and establish that revitalization of Anishinaabe ceramics and knowledge, really. Um, it is the hope that the OCF will lead conversations about the ceramic heritage of the Anishinaabe people um, will lead the discussions and conversations that the role of archaeology has in our communities. And we look to develop ideas about connecting archaeological material to the present. And with that, we need support from our friends and our allies that are in these fields of study, whether it's archaeology, anthropology, museum studies. And we also need friends and allies that are already placed in these institutions. And so we've partnered with the Gardner Museum 
uh, which is down in Toronto, Ontario. And yeah, we look forward to where this new partnership and this new relationship will take us. I'm interested to hear how that turns out. Are there any other projects that you're working on that you think are good examples of collaborative community-based Indigenous archaeology? Well, I can talk about what I'm hoping to do with Naomi at the OCF. So the project Naomi and I are, are working on right now at the OCF is we hope to begin a community-based project based on a set of collections that the OCF was actually able to rescue from poor storage conditions in Sudbury in like 2013. And they were able to take on this amazing set of collections from around the Northeast Ontario region. These collections were excavated, much of them in the 60s and 70s, without any engagement or consultation with local First Nations at all. And what our goal is, I think, first of all, is to involve the community right from the get-go in establishing a catalog for these collections and a catalog that's more reflective of their own heritage values as opposed to a catalog that's more reflective of a, a typical archaeological approach based in more Western, typical Western methods. And once we have that catalog kind of established in, in the way that the community wants, and we're hoping to conduct surveys as well as meetings, if we ever are allowed to meet in person again, in order to establish what that catalog will look like. And once we have that catalog, we're hoping to involve the community in developing a research question about these collections and what they can say about the past of the Anishinaabeg peoples in the region. So hopefully, uh, yeah, something good finally can come out of this project and we can bring collections back in engagement with the descendant First Nation communities. What are some of the limitations of the European concept of secular universal reason or knowledge? In particular, how do these limitations affect archaeology as a field of research? I would say that uh, I think it's limiting because it's exclusionary. The idea that archaeologists or scientists are the only ones that possess the requisite knowledge or skills to evaluate the past or data has been constructed and maintained by institutions, governments, and industries that profit from being the sole purveyors of knowledge or truth. This has profound and disturbing effects on Indigenous communities who see themselves as the rightful stewards of our ancestors' belongings, sacred sites, and landscapes, to name a few. The idea that Indigenous communities do not have important local or traditional knowledge that could be useful to the field of research is, dam is damaging. Quite the opposite, working directly with and building relationships with Indigenous communities can lead to ext extremely successful research collaborations. I think that a lot of academics do research on topics that are interesting to them, regardless if they could do research that would help a community, such as like with a land claim. So many branches of research are mobilized to improve the lives of humans. Why don't we use archeology span to improve the lives of people that need it today? 
rather than focusing on some arcane problem that only other academics will understand or care about. Why are many archaeologists reluctant to incorporate other worldviews into their research or into the interpretation of their research findings? I think they're reluctant primarily because it means they would have to relinquish or share control over the knowledge, analysis, and interpretations of the research. The Academy is based on competition, competition for resources in the form of grant monies, competition for publications, which are instrumental for getting tenure and annual pay bumps, and competition to be the best in your identified field. If an, if an academic is sharing and open to equal partnerships, how does this translate in the academic world if you have been conditioned into thinking that to be the best, you have to be in full control of everything? And you also have to be first, right? You have to be first author, first name on the grant, first in your field. However, in my opinion, I think the first thing they should be thinking about is First Nations, for example, and how to do research that will help communities with their archaeological and heritage heritage issues and how to build capacity and empower those communities that have been marginalized from any form of control over their ancestral past. Why do you think that many researchers separate different worldviews when interpreting their findings and consider them only as separate and non-interacting? I think that they do this for reasons that I've already talked about, but I think they do so for two additional reasons. One, some researchers are respectful and don't want to be seen uh, to be taking credit for ideas that they didn't conceive themselves. For instance, the idea of braiding knowledge is an, is an Indigenous concept, taking different ways of knowing and braiding them to interpret phenomena. I think as more positive and successful collaborations come to fruit and long-term relationships are established, this might change, however. The second reason I think they keep things separate is because perhaps while they want to collaborate, and it's really the only way to do ethical archaeology on Indigenous peoples, past or present, they want to distance themselves from knowledge they don't think is scientific in their minds. Hmm. If you keep it separate, you can't be seen to actually endorse it. I'm sure this isn't true in a lot of cases, but there is still some resistance to do the right thing, to be open-minded, um, to non-academic viewpoints, and to be equal partners in the research process. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree with uh, everything Sarah said. Um, obviously, I I do think that there might be an extra a layer of um, of difficulties, uh, even with researchers who do want to um, collaborate. Uh, um, I know from my own experience, just trying to work out uh, which theor theoretical perspectives I should be using as a researcher doing community based research. Um, I think it's possible that many researchers with Western worldviews still struggle with how they should bring Western-based science approaches together with uh, local Indigenous knowledge systems. Um, a few archaeologists have noted this in the literature already, people like Craig Sapola and Ian McNiven. Um, they've written about how we haven't really delved into the theoretical implications of bringing Western-based archaeology together with other knowledge systems. And there's a, a lot of work to, to be done there. And in my opinion, I think that work has to be done uh, from like the Western-based perspective's end, um, because I think many of the roadblocks preventing us from bringing other worldviews meaningfully into academia have been set up around our own typical Enlightenment science approaches. Uh, I, I think what's really important here is considering um, 
Vine Deloria Jr.'s book, uh, the, Metaphys the Metaphysics of Modern Existence, um, where he kind of puts it perfectly. Um, one, he says, uh, one of the chief distinguishing characteristics of Western peoples in these fields has been the belief that the ultimate uh, reality exists over and above the transitory experiences of daily life. Uh, this kind of reminds me of the scene in Indiana Jones, I think the last crusade, uh, where he's teaching his class that archaeology is the search for fact, not truth. And I think that perfectly exemplifies the double vision that Deloria was accusing us of. Um, because from an enlightenment science point of view, there really is a difference between fact, which is something you observe in your daily life, and truth, which tends to be treated as a more personal truth about what the world really is and means. This science-religion split uh, has been perpetuated in Western science, uh, basically so that the Catholic Church could avoid adapting itself to new scientific data. Uh, but not all worldviews have the science-religion split, so I think it can be hard for Western scientists to wrap our head around that. Um, because of our privilege, I don't think we've been fully confronted with the implications of the split. Our whole lives are built around science being wholly secular. So I think we've come accustomed to thinking that Enlightenment science is this universal way of knowing the world, and we can just kind of plug it into various belief systems. But I think if we start properly, respectfully engaging with other worldviews, the more I think our attention will be drawn to the contradictions that are inherent to our own worldviews. A lot of archaeologists come from a very similar cultural background. Most have a very similar education and training as well. What are some of the limitations and problems of having most archaeological research being based predominantly on one worldview? Yeah, this is a, a very important question, and it brings me back to thinking about uh, Donna Haraway's work, uh, where she gave a really great critique of positivist science. She's the one who coined the term situated knowledge, where she argued that knowledge production occurs only through positioned rationality. So basically, one's understanding of the world is the result of the relationships they create and maintain with the people and things around them. That means two things. Uh, first, that everyone is observing reality in some way. And second, everyone is only getting that slice of reality available to them through their own specific life experiences. We're all limited in our understanding of the world, um, but certain life experiences can afford us certain knowledges. So that's a really long way of saying that if everyone in archeology span is like white settler middle class, uh, we're very likely perpetuating a really limited understanding of the past by including researchers of diverse life experiences, we will most certainly benefit from a richer understanding of archaeological materials. What are some of the difficulties that might be faced by researchers who try to bring together different knowledge systems, either practical difficulties of actually doing it or difficulties due to the implications of doing so? As I mentioned, I think there's some resistance to being open-minded about different ways of knowing because it's not considered an entirely scientific by the academic community. I think for some researchers, being scientifically rigorous comes first, but I think there's room for many interpretations and many voices in the research process. This means that compromises have to be made so that the voices have equal weight. 
A lot of research and projects that I see are well-intentioned, but I don't think we're entirely there yet. The problem I see repeatedly is that academics want to do things on their own timeline, which doesn't allow for the building of respectful and long-term relationships. Trust is at the root of any mutually beneficial relationship. If you have trust, then you'll find a way to compromise and a way to braid both Western and Indigenous ways of knowing. What is reflexivity and why is its application in archaeology limiting? Uh, so reflexivity is an idea that came into archaeology uh, with Ian Hodder's post-processual approach, as I'm sure many people out there somewhat remember from theory class. And um, it was an important idea for the time, for sure. Uh, reflexivity called us to pay attention to our own position in the world and how that might influence our research. It also called for the involvement of local communities to contribute their own interpretations of the archaeological evidence in order to give rise to a, a more multivocal archaeology, where several interpretations were uh, laid out alongside one another. So I, I really think that reflexivity was imp an important tool for us to acknowledge our positionality in the world, but I think uh, recently researchers have begun to come to terms with its limitations as well. For example, uh, both Donna Haraway and Karen Barad have written about how reflexivity is a bit of a flawed approach. Uh, first of all, reflexivity kind of keeps us focused on ourselves and our own biases. It leaves us stuck looking at our own reflection, forever finding our own experiences reflected in the archaeology. And according to post-processual archaeology, the only way to even try to correct for this was to create a multivocal archaeology by involving different stakeholders, each of them reading the archaeology or archaeological record uh, through their own lived experiences, mm -hmm. and each coming up with a slightly different interpretation, or a very different interpretation, depending. Uh, Sonia Adelaide has a really great paper that outlines some of the problems of multivocality in archaeology including how it actually has the potential to decenter Indigenous interpretations and worldviews. But on top of that, multivocal and reflexive archaeologies just kind of leave different interpretations hanging there side by side as these very discrete, non-interacting narratives. Frameworks that allow for the possibility of having different knowledges interacting to produce new knowledges and new interpretations remains not well explored in archaeology, I think. What is new materialism and the diffractive approach to archaeology? So I think new materialism is an exciting new theoretical movement that's begun to make its way into archaeology in recent years. Uh, new materialists work on how to acknowledge the mind-independent nature of the world at the same time as accounting for our situatedness in knowledge-making. They all take inspiration from Deleuze and Guattari's assemblage theory and all embrace a kind of relational ontology. Uh, that is to say, they believe that humans, animals, things, and even words are built uh, by the very relationships they form. They argue that as researchers and as human beings in general, uh, we're always in the process of making a difference in the world because just like rocks, squirrels, and electrons, we're always a part of the world that we're studying. Karen Barad, who is considered uh, a new materialist, is 
actually a theoretical physicist as well, and um, has developed an approach that I think can give us some advantages in archaeology over reflexivity, and that is the concept of diffraction. Basically, diffraction was originally a physical principle uh, which describes the interaction of waves, for example, like light waves, water waves, so on. Uh, to, and uh, to explain what she means by using diffraction as a theoretical framework, Barad asks us uh, to picture dropping two stones into a compound, for example. Uh, the ripples from each stone interact to produce an entirely different pattern that would not have been possible by either stone uh, by themselves. Diffraction then allows for a multiplicity of voices to act as co-authors of new knowledges that could never have been produced by a single voice alone. It doesn't simply present a series of discrete narratives, it lends the possibility for different interpretations to come together to build on one another. Finally, Diffraction as a framework acknowledges that all research uh, reconfigures the world in some way. And this is important because it keeps researchers accountable for the impact of their work. All our work has the potential to have ripple, a ripple effect on how the public perceives the past. So we want to be careful about what that influence is. Do you have some examples of how this can or has been used in archaeology? Oh, that's a great question. So, um, yes, I would, uh, I would argue that there's definitely archaeologists doing work out there that um, I would consider diffractive, even though they might not use that word. Um, taking on a more relational uh, uh, approach to archaeology is is on the rise. So there are definitely authors out there who who do work like this. I I would definitely argue that. Um, uh, Sonia Adlai's work is is diffractive, even though she might not uh, term it in that way. Um, and as well as uh, I, I think Craig Sapola's work is would be considered I would consider diffractive as well, um, because they're taking different viewpoints um, and, and and bringing them together to to make a new narrative that wouldn't have been possible before. So. Yeah, there's definitely uh, people doing diffractive work, even though they might not specifically cite Barad or or diffractive approach specifically. Um, but I think, I don't know, of all the new materialists, I think Barad frames um, the principles in, in a way that is kind of my favorite. So that tends to be the way I, I like to look look at these principles. What are some effective methods for including descendant populations and people with different worldviews in research projects? Uh, I think that part of the problem is both sides of the equation need to build capacity, both the academic researchers and the Indigenous partners. I think what the OCF uh, is doing with MISHI uh, the Manitoulin Island Summer Historical Institute is bridging these kinds of relationships and knowledge. What do you think, Naomi? Yeah, so with Mishi, one of the great things about it is that it was a partnership that was initiated by one of our local elders, uh, the late Louis Dabosky. And he reached out to some of his friends he had um, down at York University. 
And so with this partnership, it was about involving our local Anishinaabe communities in their project and allowing the space that empowers Anishinaabe communities to teach their narratives and share their worldviews with students, academia, uh, professors um, that were willing and wanting to listen. Uh, so Mishi, the Manitoulin Islands Summer Historical Institute, is an annual summer program that is in partnership between OCF and the History of Indigenous Peoples Network at York University. Um, every summer, um, Anishinaabe studies or Indigenous studies um, groups, um, professionals in different fields of study uh, come together with students, teachers, knowledge holders, artists, and elders for a week-long summer program on Manitoulin Island. And every summer program has a different theme, and it's very specific, such as education, the environment, gender, material culture, plans. Uh, this past summer would have been a focus on art and land. But because of COVID, we couldn't have that happen. Uh, so that is moved now to next summer, hopefully. And the beautiful part of this project is that it is Manitoulin Island-based Anishinaabe history, but it's from an Anishinaabe perspective. It is taught from our perspective. And so the goals of Mishi are to teach participants about Anishinaabe history on Manitoulin Island, focusing on experiential learning, so hands-on learning, uh, support the historical and educational resources here at the OCF, but ultimately it's about building bridges and strengthening that relationship and cooperation between OCF as a community organization and York University as an academic institution. I think there's a misconception that Indigenous communities don't want to be involved in archaeology, but based on my experience giving Indigenous archaeological monitor training, there's a huge appetite for archaeological training and knowledge. From some of the training and field school projects that I am aware of, they identify the lack of financial compensation as the reason for poor participation by Indigenous students or partners. For instance, many Indigenous students do not have the financial support to go without working during the summer. It is important to think about potential barriers for participation and include remedies that would encourage inclusion and participation like wages and financial compensation. So often, researchers want to work with communities and document their traditional knowledge. I don't know any archaeologists who are working for free, <laughs> right? Um, as people with access to resources, we collectively have to work together to break down these barriers, whether they be financial or otherwise. Um, also, in my experience, it's not difficult to involve descendant groups and projects if you're committed, again, to building a relationship with them. And these things don't happen overnight. Um, it's going to take a while, but they will welcome you with open arms. Once they get to know you and um, 
and know that you have really great intentions. What advice would each of you give to archaeologists who want to make their own research more collaborative? Um, to not be afraid of incorporating other knowledge systems or other worldviews into your research project. Um, if a like if a researcher if their project is just focused on one worldview, then that's a very colonial mindset, right? And for me, I feel sorry for that person, for that researcher, because they are only closing themselves off from a deeper understanding and being able to grasp the full picture. The local indigenous knowledge is so important and valuable, and for any researcher that has been able to work on projects that engage and collaborate with Indigenous communities, or that engage and collaborate with elders and knowledge keepers, then they are the fortunate ones in their field. I hope, whoever's listening, I hope you know and understand what a privilege that is to be a... <clears throat> What a privilege that is to be allowed and accepted in by a community, right? For years, academia and scholars, there's a long history of abusing Indigenous communities. And so it's like these acts, these small acts of building trust is often a big part of any collaborative research project and um those acts of building trust don't have to be any grand gesture it could just be having patience and having time um for elders to contemplate your questions um i think sarah with her she always brings food and she always brings little <laughs> gifts. And those are, um, those are so important. And our elders remember, remember that even those gifts of like jam, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, it means a lot. Yeah. Really well put, Naomi. I totally agree with everything you said. Uh, it is, I think that I, I, it's really difficult to, to think about, it's true, um, what the privilege that, you know, academics have had um, for forever and, and in terms of having access to the grant monies that fund their projects and then and taking our ancestral belongings and interpreting it, interpreting them, uh, mobilizing this knowledge for their own benefit and not um, not really giving anything back to the communities at all, right? So this is why it is so important to do collaborative research. You know, it's it, the time is kind of like over for you know I'm going to do what I want. Should be really should be about like how can we help communities? Um, how do we give them back? the ownership and the stewardship that they deserve to have over their ancestral past. Um, 
And you know, really, I'm just going to keep saying this over and over again, but it really does. It comes, it comes back to building these relationships, building respectful relationships, in my opinion. Um, and as Naomi said, this is exactly what I was thinking. It's like, you know what? Bring food. Food is a major icebreaker in any Native community. And the reason is it's, be, it's based on sharing. And that is essential for relationship building and the building of trust, right? Thank you. I'm taking a lot of notes, you guys. <laughs> I'm learning a lot. Me too. Bring it to next time for sure. <laughs> um, so if I could give any advice to like other uh, settler people like me who are interested in uh, doing a community-based project, uh, I think I really need to stress that you need to be really flexible and, and have a lot of openness in your approach. Uh, that's huge. Um, I think it sometimes might feel scary for researchers to not be like, quote, unquote, in control of how a project unfolds. And, and I think that's something we really need to practice. Uh, because I think if we do let go of our expectations of what scientific inquiry should look like or what it must be, I think it will open up our projects to more exciting possibilities than we, what we could have initially imagined. It's been very interesting for me as well to, to do this interview because I'm myself learning quite a lot here. So I really want to thank all of you for taking the time today to come on, to share your knowledge, your experience, your background and your ideas. Thanks again, everyone, for coming in and taking your time today to share this. And I really look forward to seeing what you are working on later and how your projects turn out. Thank you so much for having us today. It was it was a productive conversation, I think. <laughs> I think so, too. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Have a nice day, everyone. Thank you. Have a good day. Have a nice day. Thank you. Thank you for having us, Otis. Have a great day. You've been listening to the Archeo Cafe podcast. For more information and news, check out our website or social media pages. Links can be found in the episode notes or simply by searching online for Archeo Cafe podcast. If you have any questions or comments for the presenters or guest speakers, we'd love to hear from you. And remember, Tradition is just peer pressure from dead people. <laughs>